I'm really excited about this sermon today, and I'm just as excited about next week where we're going to have choices with us, and we're going to be talking through uh, what they do as an organization, the incredible work that they do in our community. And then again, all of the offering that we take next week is going to go to, uh, to support their work in our community. Uh, we say that our vision is communities changed by Christ, and, and next week is about saying we want to do something very tangible to see that vision come to life and choices is doing that work in our community, so we want to support them next week. Um, we're really excited about that. We hope that you are as well. Uh, let me start with this for today, though. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but as a teenage boy, one of the things that happened to me I won't say fairly frequently, but, but fairly frequently, is uh, it would be test day at school, and, uh, and I would get to class for that particular day, and the teacher would say, okay, um, everybody leave everything away, today is test day, and I'd say, oh no, that's this week? I thought it was next week. We have tests in this class? Nobody told me that. And, and so I, being a, a fairly good student, if not the most observant student, was usually moderately well prepared for these tests. But when you're not prepared for a test, there's usually one or two or a few more answers that you're just not quite sure of. And I can't leave it blank. There's just something in my DNA that says, don't leave the answer blank. So if I don't know the answer, I'm going to swing for the fences. I'm going to take a long shot. Even if, I, even if I know it's not the right answer, I have got to put something because at least there's a chance. One of my favorite things that the internet has done is it has uh, cataloged clever answers that students have given for test questions. Have you ever seen any of these? These are just hilarious. I want to share my three favorite with you. So here's what, here's what a teacher wrote. What ended in 1896? Anybody want to guess? 1895. 1895. Well, technically, they're not wrong. I tried to Google it and find what actually did end in 1896, and I couldn't find the answer. So, I mean, I, that's as good as anything I can come up with. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give credit for that answer. Here's the next one. Uh, where was the American Declaration of Independence signed? Anybody know? At the bottom of the page, you guys would all pass my history class. Okay, this is very good. Other acceptable answers would include Philadelphia and Constitution Hall, but at the bottom of the page is right. Clark is acing this test, by the way. He's doing very well this morning. This is my favorite one. What do we call the science of classifying living things? Racism. Listen, listen, don't take yourself too seriously this morning. That is hilarious. Racism. Other, other acceptable answers would include taxonomy, right? Okay. So <laughs> the, the reason that you give a creative answer is because you don't know the real answer. You came to class and you didn't know there was a test. You weren't prepared for what was about to happen. You didn't know the real answer, and so you came up with something creative. And in John chapter 3, Jesus is having a conversation with a man who just wasn't prepared for what was about to happen. His name was Nicodemus, and he came to Jesus at night, and he came to ask some questions. We never get to hear what Nicodemus wanted to ask Jesus. 
We don't know what he wanted to ask Jesus because Jesus started by telling Nicodemus what he needed to hear. What I'm telling you this morning is that what Nicodemus needed to hear in John chapter 3 is exactly the same thing that we need to hear today. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to John chapter 3, and I want to introduce you to this conversation. John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. If you've got your Bibles, open them up, or I'll have it up here on the screen for you. John chapter 3. Uh, we're just going to read the first few verses as we start. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that, that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean? exclaimed Nicodemus. How can, how can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? So this is the introduction to this conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus, and already he's confused. But I want to start at the beginning. Let's get a little bit of context for who is talking to who here. Obviously, um, We've, we've been talking about Jesus so far. He is God who stepped into the arena of life for a very specific purpose. But, but who's this Nicodemus guy? Nicodemus, he's a Pharisee, and he's a Jewish religious leader. This is a big deal. We are talking about a heavy hitter here. Okay, if, if this conversation happened today, Nicodemus would have had his security detail with him. This is a big-time heavy hitter man that is coming to talk to Jesus at night. He's a Pharisee, uh, and, and so if you're not familiar with the term Pharisee, this is a, a Jewish religious scholar. Uh, he has his PhD in Bible. And so today you think, okay, maybe he's a, a Bible college professor at, a, at a, you know, the University of Notre Dame or something like that. But, but it, it's more than that, because we think of a Bible scholar and it's like, okay, he's respected in his field of study by his pure peers and by people who care about that sort of thing. But in the Jewish culture, you have to remember that all of their laws, their entire society is built on the foundation of the Old Testament. And so in the same sense that he's a religious scholar, he's also a political, he's also a moral, he's also a legal figure. So we could think of him as a religious scholar, but it would be just as well to think of him as a judge. So we think about a judge today, that's a person who garners a fair amount of respect in society, right? That, that's a person who's well thought of, well regarded, and Nicodemus would have been thought of in exactly the same way. He's a religious scholar, and that religion influences every aspect of their culture. So this is a big deal. Well thought of. But then in, in the next part of that sentence, the next half of that sentence, we learn that Nicodemus isn't just a well-respected judge. He's a, a religious leader, or literally a leader of the Jews. A leader of the Jews. And, and so what that means is he's part of the Sanhedrin. These are the 70 most influential religious leaders in the country. So not only is Nicodemus a well-respected judge, we find out in the second half of this sentence that he sits on the Supreme Court. And this is the man that is coming to talk to Jesus at night. Nicodemus says, Rabbi, 
We all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. I don't want you to overlook that, that first word up there. Rabbi. It means teacher. It means teacher. Nicodemus is at the very top of the mountain. He would, he would have spent years and years and decades working his way through the different levels of religious hierarchy until he has reached this pinnacle status. There's nowhere else for him to climb. He is a member of the Sanhedrin. He has spent years working towards this goal. He would have students underneath him who called him rabbi. He was a teacher. He was the one who taught and enforced the law. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, teacher. We all know that God has sent you to teach us. Nicodemus is very wise to honor Jesus with the title of rabbi. He's correct in saying that Jesus has been sent by God, but he doesn't understand what Jesus came to do. He says that you've been sent by God to teach us. And sure, Jesus did come to teach, but that was just a part of his ministry. That was a means to accomplish a task in his ministry. It was not the goal of his ministry. See, Jesus didn't come to teach. He came to redeem. Jesus didn't come to teach. He came to seek and save the lost. Jesus didn't come to teach. He stepped into the arena of life to dismantle the power of sin and death. And so Nicodemus is is wise to say that you are from God, but he doesn't understand the full scope of Jesus' ministry. What Nicodemus needed to hear was that Jesus stepped into the arena of life to dismantle the power of sin and death. He says, Rabbi, we know that you're from, from God. God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Jesus is telling Nicodemus what he needs to hear, not what he came to hear. And he starts with these two concepts that are critical. They're over, uh, they appear over and over again in this conversation, being born again in the kingdom of God. So we're going to talk about what those two, two ideas mean. They dominate the whole discussion. So if we don't understand those two ideas, we're not going to understand this conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. So let's start with being born again. And, and if, I, if I say this phrase, born again, you probably have something that pops into your mind, don't you? And, and if you're being honest with yourself, this idea of born again is probably as much political as it is religious, right? And, and that's just the way that, that it works in our culture. Uh, President Carter described himself as a born-again Christian, and it's become a, a political connotation as much as it is a religious one. So you probably have something that comes to your mind. And in our culture, born again applies to a very specific group of people, but that's not what this passage teaches us. We think about this idea of a Pharisee. And we think of Pharisees as closed-minded, rigid, judgmental. They are concerned with their own pedigree and they are very concerned with everyone else's pedigree. They're not too open to new ideas. They are very open to upholding old ideas. And 
Yet that's not what we see in Nicodemus at all. We see a man that climbed to the very top of the professional world that he lived in. He had the right pedigree. He had the right experience. He trained under the right people. And he was coming to Jesus who didn't have any of that. And he was calling him teacher. We think of Pharisees as closed-minded, but Nicodemus is one of the most open-minded people that we see when we read our Bibles. Jesus says to him, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. I love how Tim Keller describes this interaction. He says, being born again does not mean that you need more morality and religion. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you have all the morality and religion a man could ever hope to achieve, and it's not enough. You need to be born again. Morality and religion isn't enough. Let's apply that to us. Doesn't matter how good and moral and religious you are. It's not enough. None of that matters. You have to be born again. Now, I want to do the opposite side of that because if we're going to be intellectually honest, right, that, that's not such good news for us. It doesn't matter how moral and religious we are. If we are not born again, it's not enough. But let's look at the opposite side of that. It doesn't matter how bad or immoral or indifferent to religion you've been. You can be born again. Doesn't matter what you've done. You can be born again. Reminds me of a story that John Ortberg tells in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted. He says, uh, some years ago, we traded in our Volkswagen Super Beetle for a new piece of furniture, our very first piece of new furniture as a family. And my wife and I were very proud of it because it represented a substantial financial investment for us. And so we traded in my old Volkswagen for this. And we were at the, the furniture store, and we were looking at a mauve sofa. Just an aside, mauve is roughly the same, same color as Pepto-Bismol, if you just need a mental image of what mauve is. And, and so they were looking at this mauve sofa, and they get ready to buy it, and the salesman says, wait a minute, wait a minute, you have, you have kids? I say, yeah, we've got three young kids. And they say, no, 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 no. You don't want a mauve sofa. You want something that's the color of dirt. Something that's going to hide stains. Because if you get this mauve sofa, any stain is going to be there for the rest of your life. Well, this guy obviously didn't know our parenting skills, Ortberg says. We know how to control our children. And so they buy the mauve sofa. And from that moment forward, the most important rules in the house were you will not look at the mauve sofa, you will not touch the mauve sofa, you will not sit on the mauve sofa, you will not eat near, think near, or breathe near the mauve sofa. It's kind of like the Garden of Eden, the forbidden fruits. On every chair in the house you may freely sit, but upon this sofa, the mauve sofa, you may not sit, for in the day you do, you will surely die. Then came the fall. One day there appeared on the mauve sofa a stain. Red stain. Red jelly stain. So my wife, who had chosen the mauve sofa and loved her mauve sofa, lined up the three children in front of it. Laura, age four. Mallory, two and a half. And Johnny, six months. Do you see that, children? That's a stain. That's a red stain. A red jelly stain. The man at the sofa store says that's not coming out. Not forever. You know how long forever is, children? 
That's how long you're going to stand here unless somebody tells me who put this stain on my sofa. Mallory broke first. With quivering lip and tears in her eyes, she said, she did it as she pointed to her younger sister. And your younger sister, who can barely talk, begins to protest, no, 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 I didn't. And this moment was followed by a deep and resounding and lasting silence. I knew the children wouldn't say anything. They'd never seen their mom this upset before. I knew the children wouldn't say anything because they knew if they did, they'd spend the rest of their lives in time out. I knew they wouldn't say anything because I put the jelly stain on the mauve sofa and I wasn't saying anything. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter what you've done, you can be born again. So, what does it mean to be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So, don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of the spirits. This idea of being born again is, is what we call baptism. You go completely underneath the water and you are brought back up. It's symbolic of our participation in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Being born again happens in baptism. Being born again happens in baptism. So that's the first part of this conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus. Let's talk about the second. No one can, can see the kingdom of God without being born again. So we know what the being born again part is. What's the kingdom of God? What's the kingdom of God? Verse 9. How are these things possible? Nicodemus asked. Jesus replied, you are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things? I assure you, we tell you that we know and have seen, and yet, we won't believe, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven, stepped into the arena of life. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. So where's the kingdom of God? And, and if you're like me, just reading those few verses, you're going, well, if that's the passage that's supposed to clear that up for me, it, it didn't work. Can you give me a little bit more there? Because... It didn't quite clear things up for me. Let's, let's do it. Let's focus on verse 13. No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And so as Moses lifted up the bronze snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Son of Man came down from heaven. He stepped into the arena of life. And just as Moses lifted up the bronze snake, I, I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version of this this morning. Okay, I've already got a long sermon. Cancel your lunch plans. I don't have time to, to read all of Numbers 21. So I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version of this this morning. If you want to read the full story, Numbers chapter 21 is where you want to be. Uh, Moses leading the Hebrew people, just as God commanded, and the Hebrew people they start to complain. 
they start to complain a little bit. The only thing that we have to eat is manna, and it's awful, and we don't have any, anything to season it with or anything to go with it, and it's bland, and we just really don't like it. And they start to complain to Moses, and they start to complain about Moses, and eventually they start to complain about God. Probably not the best idea. Hindsight's twenty twenty. So God sends poisonous snakes among them, and lots of people are bitten, and eventually, and eventually the, the poison that is coursing through them, it, it starts to kill people. And they know because they, they start to see people dropping. They start to see people die. People they know, people they've spent their lives walking alongside with, people that they complained about the manna with, all of a sudden, boom, they start to die. By the way, this is what happens when you complain about worship music. Watch out for snakes under your pews. So they go to God, and they go to Moses, and they say, Moses, we are really sorry. Would you pray for us? Please just pray to God that these snakes would go away. So Moses goes, and and he prays, and God says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to cure this um, poisonous snake problem, and here's how you're going to do it. I want you to make an image of one of these snakes, and I want you to put it up on a pole and hold it up above your head, and everybody who looks up at that snake will be healed from the venom that's coursing through their veins. And so that's what happens. Moses makes it, holds it up on the stick, and everybody who looks at it is healed, just like how Jesus went up onto the cross and everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Now, let, let's bring that back to our question. I'm going to bring some clarity to it. What is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the priorities of God being fulfilled in creation. The kingdom of God is the priorities of God being fulfilled in creation. Let me explain that. Okay? So what are the priorities of God? What are the priorities of God to heal people from the sin that is killing them? Right? What was the, the priority of God with the snake in the wilderness? They had poison coursing through their veins, kind of like how sin courses through our veins, and it makes us sicker and sicker, and it drags us down into deeper and deeper in darkness until eventually it kills us. The priority of God in the wilderness was to kill people from the venom that was coursing through their veins. The priority of God in all of creation is to cure us from the sin that is making us sicker and sicker. What are the priorities of God to heal people from the sin that is killing them? To welcome people into the family of God. And Jesus accomplished those things by coming down from heaven and living among us, then being lifted up onto the cross as a sacrifice for our sin. The kingdom of God is the priorities of God being fulfilled in creation. And when I think about the kingdom, it's easy for me to think about a place, a destination. It's easy for me to think about a geographic location. Indiana is the kingdom of God. And that's the way that we think about a kingdom. But that's not the way that God thinks about a kingdom. It's not a location. It's a purpose. It's a purpose. And so that, I don't know if that helps you, but that helps certain Bible passages come into a clearer focus for me. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Seek first the priorities of God. 
Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Behold, the priorities of God are being fulfilled in Christ. You cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. You cannot see the priorities of God unless you are born again. Or maybe what what did Jesus say at the end of that prayer in Matthew 6? Your kingdom come, your will be done. See, the kingdom of God is the priorities of God being fulfilled in creation and church. It's our job to make sure that we continue that work of fulfilling the priorities of God in all of creation, but specifically in our communities. I want to tie it all together. Verse 16. You may have heard this before. This is how God loved the world. He gave His one and only Son so that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. You might have heard that before, but you've got it in the full context now. You see that word believe? Everyone who believes in him will not perish. Turns out that's a somewhat important word in this passage. It's kind of important word in this passage. Turns out that belief, real belief, will always translate into action. Real belief will always translate into action. Here's what I mean. Let's say uh, you're at home and uh, your, your wife is down the hall, and, and suddenly she calls out to you frantically, and she says, honey, honey, there's something wrong with the toilet in the hall bathroom. It, it's filling up. It's filling up quickly. It's about to overflow. And, and you're sitting on the couch watching the game. You say, okay, I'll, I'll take a look at it next commercial. No, no, you don't understand. You need to come look at this now. Hey, listen, listen, I, I believe you, okay? I believe you. Just calm down. Well, either he doesn't believe you, or it's not important to him. Which one is it? Because real belief is always going to translate into action. When we read verse 16, it says there's eternal life for everyone who believes in him. And some of us are sitting on the couch saying, hey, listen, I, I believe you. I'll get to it at the next commercial break, okay? And just calm down a little bit. I believe you. Maybe we don't believe where it doesn't matter to us. And I'm asking which one is it? I want you to ask that question to yourself today. Which one is it? Maybe today you need to wrestle with this idea of belief. If you don't believe, you need to ask yourself, why? Why not? And if you have questions, ask your questions. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to have doubts. It's okay to second guess what you thought you've always believed, but deal with it. Work through it. Being in a place where it doesn't matter is a much more dangerous place than working through your doubts and questions. Or maybe you're here, you've been born again, and you're wondering what's next. That's a question for all of you who have been baptized. I want to challenge you with a quote from one of my favorite writers. This is Dallas Willard. He says this, The gospel is less about how we get into the kingdom of heaven after we die, and more about how to live in the kingdom of heaven before we die. Remember, the the kingdom of God is the priorities of God being fulfilled in creation. That's a life we start to live right now. So here's my challenge. If you're wondering what's next for you in your faith, if you're wondering what the next step is for you, how do you challenge, how do you continue to grow in your relationship with God? Is it more than just coming on Sunday? Here's my challenge for you. I want you to focus on one thing, the priorities of God. And we'll start with Micah chapter 6. In verse 8, here's what it says. No one, O people, no, O people, the Lord has told you what is good. And this is what He requires of you. 
This is what He requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I want you to put that verse on your bathroom mirror. Sticky note, write it, whatever, I don't know, if you have like eyeliner or whatever, write it on your, ba- I don't care how you do it. Just sticky note would probably be less messy. But put it on your bathroom mirror. Read it every morning as you start your day. And then pray that God would apply it in your life that day. Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. Jesus had a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. He told him exactly what he needed to hear. It wasn't what Nicodemus thought he needed to hear. It wasn't what he thought he was going to come and ask Jesus, but it was exactly what he needed to hear. Maybe today you felt like you came to church and the only thing you needed to hear was help on dealing with your marriage because your husband's the worst. Or maybe you thought you needed help dealing with your anger issues or help getting out of debt. And what I'm telling you is Jesus is telling you exactly what you need to hear. You cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And so today, I want to end our time together by sharing Jesus' whole conversation with Nicodemus in the most straightforward way I know how. The most straightforward way I know how. So here we go. In the beginning, God created us to have a relationship with him. And it was us, and it was God. And if you're investigating this, this whole Christianity thing, maybe you're trying to figure out why do these people come together and they sing songs and they give their money and they talk and then they listen to somebody else talk. And, and why do they do all this? What, what's going on? Here's what's going on. The Bible tells us that we were created to have a relationship with God. And for those of you who aren't Christians yet, you know in some way that that's a real thing or you wouldn't be here. And And at the same time that you know all of that, there is an uneasiness within you. There's an uneasiness within you. You know, there's this knowledge that something is missing. Something isn't right. And according to the Bible, that problem is called sin. What happens when we sin is that there's this barrier that develops between us and God. Imagine with me for just a second, there's this world where there's no guilt, there's no pain, there's no suffering, there's no war, no remorse, no cancer, no fear, no pain. Kind of like we talked about last week in John chapter 2, the best is yet to come. Well, that's what this was like. There was no mourning or crying or death or pain. It was just perfect unity and fellowship with God. But when sin entered the world, we have this separation that opens between us. And that's a problem. And for some of us, we've said, we're okay. We're content going our own way. We're content not listening to God. That's when that barrier opens. We may not know what's going on, but we know that something's wrong and it has to do with us not being as good as we could be. It has to do with us not being as nice or kind, as honest or righteous or holy or whatever you want to call it, as we could be. And we, we can recognize this problem in those simple terms even if we don't know anything about the Bible. And so what we do, what every major religion around the world does, is we develop ways to fix this problem. 
All world religions do that. Or maybe you've made a bargain in your own mind. I'm going to stop dealing with road rage. I'm going to be more honest on my taxes. I'm only going to listen to Christian radio. I'm going to stop eating gluten. I don't know. I don't know what bargain you made with God to try to resolve this issue. But every one of us has tried to do that at some point. But what we learned from Nicodemus that whatever bargain you made to try to be better, it's not enough. It's not a matter of having more morality, righteousness. It's not enough. You have to be born again. The Bible says we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What's worse, the Bible tells us that our sin must be punished. It's where we get the concept of hell. Now remember, we, we, think, of, we think of the kingdom of God as a physical location, right? We think of the, the kingdom of God as a physical location. Like Indiana is a physical location. So we think of the kingdom of God, it's going to have a, a, a physical location somewhere. Well, we think of hell the same way too. It's a geographic spot, a lot like California. That wasn't in my notes. Probably shouldn't have said that. Let's take that one back. All right, backtrack it, 30 seconds. Um, so we, we think of hell as a geographic location in the same way that we think of the kingdom of heaven as a geographic location, but in the same way that the kingdom isn't one particular spot, hell isn't one particular spot. Hell is the absence of God completely. Hell is the complete absence of God, and it will be unimaginably awful there. God says this divide this divide, if you don't fix it, one day it will become permanent. And we will spend eternity separated from each other. And for you, it will be hell. Because I won't be there. But the good news is that God didn't leave us alone to fix it on our own. He didn't leave us alone to figure out some solution to this problem. God loves us so much but he wasn't going to leave us in this mess. And so 2,000 years ago, Jesus came and died on the cross. And now that cross becomes a bridge over which we can walk to God's side. But you have to make a decision to do it. It's not simply a matter of, well, I was born in America and I get to go to heaven when I die. In order to get over to God's side, we need to do three things. And it starts with this, very simply, belief. You have to believe. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus in verse 16? For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son that whoever what? Believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Remember what we said about belief. Belief always translates into action. I believe and because of that, I am going to repent it's an old English word. It simply means I'm going to change my direction. I was going this way saying, God, I don't care what you think. I don't care what your priorities are. I'm going to do my own thing. And if that bothers you, so be it. But now that I, I see, I acknowledge that I've hurt you. I've hurt people I love. I've hurt myself. And I don't want to do that anymore, God. And when we acknowledge that in our minds, we then take the physical step of being baptized. Now listen, I, I don't make blanket statements. I don't do that, okay? So hear me when I say this, when I say what I'm about to say. Every single person in the New Testament who became a, a Christian after the resurrection of Jesus was baptized. 
Look through your Bible. Study it if you don't believe me, but that's the statement I'm making. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus, you have to be born again. And here's where I'm at. If you haven't been born again, I want to make that invitation to you. I want to give you an opportunity to commit to God today. So do you believe? Are you ready to stop walking away from God? If that's you, I think you should be born again today because you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. So if you need to make that commitment today, we're going to stand and sing. You can meet me down front or in the lobby after service, and we'll baptize you today.